Canine Detection Collaborative, a detection dog training trio with Stacy Barnett. Hi. Robin Grubel. Hey there. And Crystal Wing. What's up? With humor and a big dose of theory, our trio talks practical training advice and features interviews with top trainers and scientists. It's Canine Detection Collaborative! Welcome back to the Canine Detection Collaborative. I am one of the hosts, Crystal Wing, and I'm here with Robin Grubel. Hello. And we are here with the most special guest today, all the way from Bali. It's Martha Hoffman. Yay! Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are super stoked, and I don't want to take any time away from all of the silliness. Um, we tend to like ramble on. So, Martha, will you please tell everybody who you are and why we're so fortunate to have you here? I'm Martha Hoffman, and uh, I retired to Bali, but uh, instead of really retiring, I started following dogs around for hours every day and taking photographs because the dogs absolutely were different from any dogs I'd seen in the U.S. They behaved so differently. I got fascinated. And, uh, and for about 25 years, I was a trainer at the hearing dog program at the San Francisco SPCA. So that was basically my career was uh, looking for potential hearing dogs in the shelters because we used rescue dogs. In addition, training them and placing them with deaf and hard of hearing people. And what got you fascinated with that? Uh, well, I've always been hard of hearing. And when I got my first dog, he was a Yorkie. And I just was obsessed about training him because I'd wanted a dog all my life. And I trained him every trick that I could even had ever wanted and to see. And I noticed that he would be barking when the telephone rang. And I thought, huh, now I know the phone is ringing. And then I read about a brand new thing. This was in like 19, 1980s, uh, 70s. And I'd heard about this thing called a hearing dog. And I thought, oh. And I started teaching him to come and get me instead of barking, because I knew that barking was not always the best thing. And so he was just uh, amazing. He would come and get me. If I was in my dark room developing photos, he'd scratch on the door. He would alert me if someone was at the door. And this was in Manhattan. So we would both get down on our hands and knees and stare underneath the door to see if it was a legit knocker or not. But then when I moved to California, I heard about the hearing dog program. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is real. And after uh, after some fits and starts, I got a job there and I just oh, I never was going to leave. <laughs> you found your passion. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. And something you said that really already sparked, yeah, there's, I'm going to have so many questions and there's so much more to you than what you've already just said. So I'm going to be pulling more out of you. So just get ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something you already mentioned was that you were um, at the SPCA. And so that's where you were pulling your dogs from. Is, is that where you got everybody? No, uh, very rarely. Okay. Um, every week, we trainers would spend at least a day going to different shelters in California. And we would travel, you know, to uh, northern and northern and almost to southern California. So I might travel to seven shelters in one day driving wow. and observe 
they, in those shelters, there might be 300 dogs total. And if I was lucky, I might take one home to be a hearing dog after it passed the evaluations. So can you tell us about some of the selection process? Because um, I'm curious, you know, every every discipline has the things that are preferred, like what what makes that the mm-hmm. best dog for that job. And so I'm curious, the overlap, especially with all of our detection handlers, because there's a lot of alerting happening for both. And so I'm just curious of that crossover. Well, the basic temperament has got to be suitable for public access. So that's a given. You know, uh, low aggression, low fearfulness, high sociability, and, you know, the other things that you need to have a good service dog. Uh, But in terms of alerting, what I was looking for was something that I call positive sound reactivity. Because reactivity is a it's an across the board uh, feature of a temperament. It's simply how strongly the dog reacts to any stimulus. It's neither good nor bad. So, however, if a dog has positive sound reactivity, it's curious and it moves toward any sound, any unusual sound or whatever, and it it wants to investigate. And it could be a smoke alarm held behind my back, which is 95 decibels. And that could be frightening to most dogs. That's but really loud. A good potential. Yeah. It's yeah. very loud. I so I say would, that's really loud. I would hold it behind my back and muffle it. But, and this would only be after the dog had shown no fear and great interest in a little kitchen timer beeping. Hmm. So if it loves a tiny beep, I'm not going to stress it out with a smoke alarm until it right. likes the other sound. <laughs> right. But a dog that will run to investigate a smoke alarm or even paw at it, uh, is an incredible dog. It's not afraid of loud noises. And it has such a strong desire to investigate that it overcomes whatever discomfort the smoke alarm gave it. However, again, I'm not going to ring a smoke alarm anywhere near a dog until it shows it's fascinated by other sounds. Yeah. I'm just using that as an example of the extreme curiosity that some dogs show. Right. So. Being so interested in a sound with no fear, no caution, just instant turning their head and going, what is that? I must find out. And it could be kind of a prey response, like Jack Russell's will usually pick up the timer and chew it. Uh Um, Other dogs will just show some mild interest. But if they show interest, then I'm interested. Hmm. If they have super high food drive, but they're not particularly interested Well, we can work with that, but it's not going to be a dog with the natural, brilliant talent. And if the dog has super high social social interaction, but it's sort of medium in sound and food, then we can work with that because everything's going to depend on the relationship of the person with the dog, the new partner that we place it with. If the relationship is good, they Mm -hmm. learn to communicate, then things will work out. If a dog has all three, it's absolutely a genius. It's a superstar and <laughs> it's going to be amazing. But they are rare. They are rare. How long did your program take? Generally, we would place them in about six months. Oh. We, kept them, we kept them in a very enriched kennel. But 
any kennel is is damaging in the long run. So we had a we had a goal that we couldn't take a dog that needed extensive rehab. We had to take a dog that was extremely friendly, that loved every stranger automatically. My other criteria is in the shelter, the dog is happy. It's not stressed out by the shelter. That shows a super strong temperament. In the shelter, when I let it out of the kennel, it wants to stick with me. It's not curious about other dogs. It's not interested in the environment. It's thank heaven a person is with me. So it, it's interesting that um, you started talking about that sound sensitivity because I um, also am a breeder. And so I think about some of the stuff that I do with my puppies because I do the the female level disaster work. So I've always been really um, looking at, hey, how aware of you of your body and can you at six weeks climb all sorts of things? Um, mm-hmm. We put the sound noises on the TV and everything. I mean, the last letter ended up listening from everything from like war noises over to thunderstorms and vacuum cleaners. But now I'm like, huh, I never thought about putting putting things like a kitchen timer in the whelping box or in the playpen to see who would naturally come investigate it. Hmm, something for the next litter. Well, I have a program called Soundwork Groundwork. Oh. And the pro yeah. And the program is when the puppies are born, what me and my co-breeder uh, would do, um, we were breeding French bulldogs for quite a while, is put our fingers, put the dam's milk on our fingers, let the puppies suck it, and lure the puppies around, crawling around. We, want them, we wanted them to associate the dam's milk with human scent, mm. any human scent. Right. And then, and then when the... But then when puppies are, if you wanted to imprint them on hearing dog careers, then start to ring a timer and let them follow the milk once their ears open. Interesting. So okay. ring a timer, follow the, mink on, the milk on our finger. Because right. We, because in hearing dog alerting, they have to go to a person and go to the sound. So okay. the sound should mean two things. Go to a person, but also investigate the sound. And then in training, go back and forth continuously until the person reaches the sound. So once the puppies are getting to the mush stage, ring the timer a few seconds and put the food down. But you don't want to overdo it because you could get a dog that, uh, you know, that was overexcited by sounds. Right. So with the puppy thing, I take it easy. I don't want to overdo anything that's going to create uh, a really frantic adult that's too interested in sounds because not all of them are going to be hearing dogs. Right. In fact, very few. So, you know, it's it's a matter of balance, but you can imprint a puppy on sound as soon as its ears open. Okay, Martha, you just opened up a whole Pandora's box for me. Um, <laughs> you were talking about having the dog that's curious about the sound. And mm-hmm. my brain was saying curious versus confident versus uh, reactive because um, you also did protection sports. So Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that's where I come from. And I have a Malinois that is reactive to sound. So he's always very forward about sounds that he hears. So um, his uh, upbringing um, before me was the clatter stick was similar to what you just said. So clatter stick, food. 
And now I have a very frantic dog that I may never be able to get him to be okay with a clatter stick, which is part of, you know, our our training. <laughs> it's that's what the the decoy has. I mean, they don't get hit with it, but they hear the sound and he just goes through the roof. So I'm I have a lot of thoughts about this from what you just said. <laughs> so the curiosity versus the confidence versus the reactivity. Is there a way that you've been able to kind of when you look at the dog, can you make a distinction between those to know if it's, you know, which one it is? Because I look at him now and he's too frantic. And then now like thunder, uh, fireworks, all of that make him crazy. And I would have not known because he was very forward. So forward versus, you know, confident, like, what does that look like to you? I was just curious, does your dog get excited by the thunder or fearful? That's what I couldn't tell because he comes forward barking and mm -hmm. uh, very much like your typical, per, you know, a protection type dog where it's he wants to go and, and attack and get the things when you're like, yeah, the dog that, you know, <laughs> was like pawing at. But he he's very much like and that's where I'm curious what you see between fearful, because now I know mm -hmm. that it's probably fearful, but I don't think that I would have read that before. And I know some people say that. All of those reactions, even when they're kind of defensive, come from the place of fear. So I don't know what you think about that. I'm thinking like, like helmet risers work and, you know. I've actually switched fearful dogs from being fearful of thunder to attacking thunder. Okay. Only my own dogs, because you could, this could go very wrong. But the Malinois are selectively bred to go forward when they feel anything. Right. Um, they don't usually have a lot of fear. But the urge shape has been bred out of the good ones. And going forward in the face of gunfire is an essential part of both the military work and the sports work. But it's so hard. Or ignoring gunfire. <laughs> yeah, it it's is. hard to make them ignore it now. That's I need you to ignore and not go attack it. <laughs> yes, yes. But that's totally a genetic trait. And um, what I've noticed that I made a severe mistake with my first Malinois. Um, I was trying to socialize him with a terrifying toddler who kept stamping toward him. The puppy stood there eating food out of my hand, but he was gnashing it, you know, gnash, eating the food tensely. Yeah. And his hair was a little bit up. And the, but I thought, hey, he's not running away. I'm doing great. I was wrong. The puppy was afraid, mm -hmm. but he could not run away. He could not back up. He had to stand his ground. His genetics did not allow him to escape. He didn't go forward, thank heavens. And I spent the next few months getting him bonded with first one child, not with a lot of random children, but with one child who became his best friend. And then we branched out and he ended up great with kids. But that's what showed me the puppy that is a well-bred working Malinois will not run away. If it's really fearful, it will climb up your body and cling to you. Yeah. But backing up is 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 no longer in most of them's repertoire. Yeah. And the going forward is strongly bred. So uh, it's, it's a trait that is not in many other breeds. Yeah. Oh, also, also, um, as opposed, when I say positive sound reactivity, it's a totally confident behavior. Uh, there's fearful sound reactivity where the dog is genetically afraid of any sound, especially loud sounds, and will escape. And then there's dogs that are just sort of 
have neutral sound reactivity. They really kind of have no reactivity. And those dogs are difficult to train in alerting. They're not, they're tending not to wake up when a sound happens, which is the hardest task a hearing dog can do is to be a light, it needs to be a light sleeper and have the motivation to wake up when a sound happens. That's, that's really hard. Um, but if the dog has the right temperament, it's thrilled when a sound happens when it's sleeping and it's thrilled to jump up and trample somebody in bed. And uh, that's, that's the most fun part of the night. Now, my, my brain is like having a cramp at this point. Oh, so you gave a face. So that's why I was, I was having, because I always have so many questions. So Martha, forgive me. <laughs> I'm enjoying the whole conversation and the whole concept of the early socialization for me as a breeder on how that might fit into my puppy raising program. Um, because you know, I, the dogs that I want to put out into the world are either um, positive sound, have positive sound reactivity or are neutral. And it will help me adjust some of that development, puppy development stuff. And it also, I can note that in my, well, my raising logs. And so maybe I know which puppy might be better going to like a pet dog home or something like that. So no, yeah, my, my brain's cramping. Sorry. Go ahead, Crystal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I was also thinking about the curiosity versus the confidence. Do you see a difference in that? Like, how do you, I, I think along with Robin's lines too, um, how do you assess the confidence of a dog? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially with sounds, the dog should go directly forward to the sound. If it circles the sound and investigates and then backs up and then circles again and goes forward and finally decide the sound is not threatening, well, that's a little bit of a cautious response that is not ideal. It's still curious, but then there's quite a possibility that has it has a genetic uh, sound fearfulness and it is not going to progress past two important sounds like smoke alarms. That's just going to be torture for that dog. Yeah. So um, as far as general confidence, um, the dog really has to pass with my evaluations, a lot of handling tests and they're designed so that the stress I put on them is super gradual because in my job, as soon as a dog failed one test, showed any sign of stress or fear or uh, or trying to bite or whatever, I was able to put it back in the kennel and try another dog because I could only take dogs that passed. If they passed as a pet, in a, as a pet temperament and had just a few small problems, it was great. I could take them back to San Francisco where there were wealthy adopters just desperate for a nice dog. Ah, uh, nice. And the shelters I was visiting, some of them were real hell holes. You know, uh, 17 puppies in a six-foot kennel and two have already got parvo, you know? Yeah. Uh, so these shelters, the dog had no hope. Okay. So I was looking, I was I was looking for that miracle dog that passed all the evaluations, but luckily for my sanity. I could bring home dogs that were going to be great pets with just, you know, little problems that did not have, you know, that wouldn't have made hearing dog, but, you know, were great for, great for pets. So that helped, but I'm getting off the track. 
No, no, I love it. I mean, I can stack on that story. That was my first dog because I did. Um, I went to the shelter near my college, and the dog that I had really fallen in love with, they put her in the C section, and that's there are no kill shelter theoretically, but they didn't clean that section, and they knew the dogs would all die there of parvo. And so the day oh, that I found out she was oh, going, wow. so again, you know, some of those are so just unethical. So thank you for all of that work that you did. You you probably made a huge difference. Not probably, I'm sure you made a huge difference for a lot of families and a lot of dogs doing that. So that's amazing. Yeah, we talk all dogs, we, Martha. There's no off track. Yeah, here. yeah. There isn't. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> most of our detection dogs and our nose work, um, and even in you know our in all of our areas, we we get a lot of dogs from a lot of places. So this is all great stuff to know. Well, when you have the dog that loves being in the shelter, that is eager and excited with every new experience, that when you take it out of the kennel, it is not afraid in the hallway. There's lots of dogs that look good behind the bars, but when you take them in the hallway, they're overwhelmed. And a confident dog is going to, well, the dog I want that's confident and loves strangers, loves any stranger automatically. And when a shelter calls me with the phrase, well, he's so amazing once he gets to know you, <laughs> I say, uh, oh, Thanks. well, um, <laughs> no. yeah, because to get to know you, you know, a dog in public access. He's not going, you know, strangers are going to bother you. Strangers are going to stare at you. They're going to stare at the signage on the best. The more signs you have, the more patches you have, the more people will stare. So the dog has to pass all of my testing on eye contact. It has to either ignore my eye contact, avoid it in an appeasing way, like, oh, sorry, if you're staring at me, I, I, I'm just going to look over here because I love you so much. That's perfectly acceptable. Um, but the dog, when I finally, after, after very mild eye contact, if I give the dog hard eye contact and I stiffen my body a tiny bit, many dogs will suddenly say, oh, oh you're terrifying. I'm leaving. Or they will say, oh yeah, come closer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They will, they will lock on a stare to me. I can't take those dogs. Yeah. Uh, a negative reaction to eye contact, whether it's genetic or, or learned is going to be a disaster for a public access service dog. I love that tip. Thank you. Yes. And I and I only do that test behind bars. I never do it with a loose dog. I'm, I I I horrible things have happened to certain shelter workers who who did not follow, you know, leashing rules and stuff. So a lot of my testing is while the dog is in the kennel. I want to know that it's confident in the kennel if I raise my hand. I want to know that it will wants to come up to me, my hand against the kennel. Um, it'll put its feet up on the bars. If I touch its feet lightly and it yanks them away and runs away, not acceptable. And I know it sounds very harsh and people criticize for being such a rigid test. But the evaluations do result in a dog that is confident with strangers, loves a stranger, and would rather be with a person than do any other activity. That's a hearing dog. It's not off doing its own thing. It's hanging out with you. And it's good with strangers and family. And I think something you said there too, as you talked about, um, we call it the find refind. So when our dogs find odor, um, one of the techniques is that they can 
go, they get the odor, we're far away or close or wherever, and they have to come back and they have to tell us, and then they have to take us to the odor. And so I was curious um, in the ways that we teach it, the similarities, the differences, um, would you be willing to share some of how you do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, my latest method, which teaches about five things in a row, is ping pong. And two people sit close together and hand a treat bag back and forth. And each person gives the dog a treat. They stand up a few feet away, repeat the procedure. This is continuous. The dog is going continuously back and forth for like, you know, 10 or 12 times, as long as it's hungry. Then you stand a little bit farther away, maybe 10 feet. You start tossing the treat bag back and forth. Each person opens the treat bag and gives a treat, tosses it back to the other person. This is new. It only took me 20 or 30 years to figure <laughs> out this shortcut. <laughs> I, but, I get um, it. <laughs> but so you're teaching... You're teaching, and then what you do is you start fake throwing, and each of you has a bait bag. Right. Wow, it sounds like a progression plan for training. <laughs> I'm big on progression plans. <laughs> well, what happens is the dog starts going back and forth automatically, continuously, as you, as you reduce the number of treats. And if you happen to want to send signal, you've already got one. You've got the motion of throwing the treat bag, which you can evolve into a send signal go find mom. So the dog is learning to go to a person. It's learning to go to food. It's learning to um, look for the other person. It's learning to leave a person with food, which is very important. They know the person has food in the bag, but they're leaving to get the other treat. They also are learning a send signal. So my students that have tried this out have really cut their training time way down. But that's not enough. That is a rote back and forth movement. The dog also needs to learn to lead you to a goal. So you also teach leading behavior, which is lead you to a treat box next to the sound. <laughs> and, per and be persistent and keep forcing you. Once the dog learns to force you to go to the sound by constantly touching and going, uh, and going there and coming back and badgering you, just like a dog would make you go to the kitchen to its food bowl. Then you have a dog that knows has a goal-directed behavior. It understands that the sound, the sound and the treat box mean pester the owner into going to the sound. The owner opens the treat box. The dog gets a treat. So when you combine the back and forth behavior of continuous back and forth, which is more like a concept. It's one behavior. It is not a uh, shaped behavior. It's go continuously back and forth until you get a treat fast. Right. Touch each person fast. Then it evolves to lead a person to a sound and force them to go. And so it only took you 20 years. <laughs> no. No, I, I, there are many other methods but this is the fastest yeah i love it <laughs> so i was thinking about the um what you were talking about when 
um, you were selecting dogs from the shelter and what you were looking for in a hearing dog. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds exactly like a really nice, confident sport detection dog, potentially a working detection dog. Do you have your selection criteria and kind of how you do that anywhere on the like internet universe or is that, is it all in your brain? Uh, that's my book. Uh, Lend oh. me an ear. Excellent. Lend, and there's a similar one. So it's lend me an ear and it's on, it's available through Dogwise. And we will link uh, everything, all of your classes and contacts and books and everything. So everything. please make sure that you share all of this as we're talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. We want to make sure that people can connect. That book has um, has all of my training about my shelter dog evaluation protocols. Fantastic. Perfect. And it has a training section, but it was written in 1997. So my current methods use a lot more tech. And they're much, much faster. So do you have like an addendum to that book then? Well, I teach online courses. Um, and so um, they're in PowerPoint form. And weekly we have a group chat. And I coach everybody individually because everybody's got slightly different needs. So they can take the techniques that are in the course and I help them tailor them to their exact sound and the dog's temperament. And I, I actually already knew that, but I just wanted to make sure that <laughs> that was my polite so, way to get you to plug yourself a little, please. <laughs> well, my courses are called, my courses are called sound work. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have a lot of questions. So you were talking about selection of dogs. And then I'm thinking about for search work and detection work, um, there's always kind of a conversation about you want independent dogs that are going to be willing to leave and, and to kind of make those decisions. Um, wh where does independence come with, with your kind of preferences? Do you want kind of an independent dog at all? But it sounds like you don't. Like you want a dog that's really very biddable and with you. Yes. Yes. Um, independent dogs are not, well, for a basic idea, they're not usually in the same room. So you can't use their natural behavior to know what a sound, about a sound. So it should be a dog that is, its number one goal is to be with the handler, but it's not afraid to leave the handler. It's curious and it wants to search for things, but it might actually be a little hard to get it to range out. Yeah, interesting. And you made a post recently that I would like to kind of dig into. Um, and it was about how much obedience the dog has already um, as to when you introduce some of the indication. And in the search and rescue world, I find a lot, I, I love to teach functional obedience. And I will hear from people often that no, 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 don't put obedience on the dog because then they won't range and they won't do the things you want them to do. Um, and I loved your post because I felt like it really kind of went there. W would you be willing to kind of share what you wrote and your thoughts? Yeah. Um, because we were adopting shelter dogs that were often very neglected, but yet had an incredible temperament. And probably a lot of them might've been raised by children and then dumped in the yard, you know, but, but they had this 
basic great temperament. And they picked up the sound training really quickly. We were starting from scratch with obedience. Um, and we discovered that, you know, if we did too much obedience and too much obedience, then the dog tended to be waiting for cues. So we went sort of easy on the obedience at first, but we did everything together because everything was, you know, very, very positive and, you know, motivation. But what I noticed once I started training online was people with dogs that had multiple titles, knew 20 tricks, um, did all kinds of sports, except things like nose work that, you know, that build the dog's uh, independent thinking. These dogs were really difficult to train in sound work. And they might quickly learn that the sound meant a treat. They might quickly learn that the sound meant go to the person. They would super quickly learn a touch cue. But when the sound happened, they tended to stare at the owner like, can I alert you now? <laughs> <laughs> and the owner would stare at the dog thinking, why aren't you alerting me? Why are you not doing the thing? Yeah. 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 And then the owner would give a touch cue and the dog would, oh, thank heavens, I can work now. And it would run and touch. So people would get really frustrated. And it turned out that even if you've trained 50 cues completely positively, the dog is still focused on cues. So it's, you know, it's, it hasn't, it really hasn't had its independent thinking um, developed enough. So the cure for that is to lay off all the cued training, do lots of puzzles and games, do uh, things where the dog has to figure out how to maneuver all by itself. And also in daily life, ring a timer at some random time and toss a treat. Just get the dog really excited. Uh, get the dog incredibly excited by the sound. And very quickly, the dog realizes that it has to make its own decisions and that the sound is the cue. The telephone is the cue. The owner so, is not going to give the cue. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that a lot of the training lacked independent thinking and problem solving and that other things can mean the cue other than the owner. So like in odor work, like you said, the nose work dogs had the advantage because odor was a cue. So I, I love exactly. that. I love that balance. I think that's what the piece I was missing when I would try to explain that doing obedience and functional obedience, you know, not, not, you know, overly crazy. Uh, and even if I, if I wanted to, you know, um, to get really fancy healing and all of that, you still have to layer in all of the problem solving and critical thinking within that to keep your dog balanced. Yes, it's a balance. And the other kind of dog that takes to uh, sound work really well is the completely spoiled brat that knows how to bully a person into getting, giving them what they want. I loved it when you said because that in your pestering, post. <laughs> pestering. Sound alerting is just pestering. Now, not nose work where the dog has to freeze. So that's basically not pestering. But in sound work, we want the dog to pester you until you go to the sound. And so the only difference between alerting and pestering is that 
You manage to persuade the dog that pestering is in its own best interests, and it will get a treat. And those dogs already know how to be persistent because the owner, of course, usually resists 10 or 20 times before they finally give in to the brat. <laughs> and and those dogs, those dogs already have a skill. And of course, they're still a brat and they're still demanding. And the owner is going to have to kind of try to cut down on rewarding unwanted behavior. But uh, the same with the other type of dog. Once the dog knows the sound is the cue, it springs into action. If it's if it's completely motivated, that alerting is the most fun event of the day over all other doggy activities. I mean, you just described nose work and scent work. It that needs to be the most motivating thing of the day because that's what we love to do. It's so perfect. And yeah. I also love that you are really expressing the individual dog and allowing them to have their quirks, their strengths, and and really uh, take advantage of that. And I think that's exactly what we do in all of our detection dogs, too. I love it. Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, and um, I read somewhere that you actually did bed bug work. Yeah. And right. And so how did all of this stuff that you learned doing the hearing dog work segue into the bed bug work? Well, um, I just happened to uh, do a consultation with a woman who, whose bed bug dog was pooping at random and was like what you call a double pooper, it turned out. Right. <laughs> the poop, <laughs> the first poop, you don't, you, don't, you don't give up and go into a house. You wait for the second poop. So I was helping her with that, and she offered me a job. And I said, yeah. And she said, okay, I'll loan you Megan, the beagle, and I'll give you a jar of bed bugs, a goldfish bowl of bed bugs, and uh, you're off. So they trained me. Uh, the beagle was fantastic. Um, she, she was very food motivated. My main problem was... Uh, was um, keeping her focused enough that she never gave a false alert when she got tired. Mm. My other focus was making sure she was only trained on live bed bugs in a vial with a, with a, a, a mesh lid because dead bed bug scent just means somebody killed them previously and there's no more live ones. She was really the perfect dog because children were not afraid of her. And if they were afraid of her, I said, do you love Snoopy? And they say, yeah, I love Snoopy. I said, well, this is Snoopy. This is a beagle. Yes. And beagles have the softest ears in the world. Thank would you, you like to pet Snoopy's ears? And I would hold her so the kids, she couldn't jump on the kids. And they would pet the ears and go into a trance. Aww. So perfect, perfect doggy for going into homes, especially homes from cultures that are afraid of dogs. And this was in California. And um, she was already trained, but I did a lot of maintenance training because every situation is different. So how did you address the not giving a false alert when tired concept with, with the beagle? More like, more like not giving a false alert when she had been searching a while and wanted a treat. Right. So how did you address that? Well, um, I could always go out 
if I had, if I, I could keep my bed bug in their jars in an airtight container so I could always go out or to another empty apartment and do a little training session with a vial, take the okay. vial out of the airtight container. Um, every situation was so different, especially because people use a lot of chemicals. They use essential oils to kill bed bugs, which doesn't work. Nothing works, really. Even poison doesn't work because bed bugs live inside, in, deep inside wood or walls. They're nasty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so um, I got so I could read her behavior pretty well. And I could try other places in the apartment. I have to say that after after I quit the job and moved to Bali and gave the dog back, she still had a little bit of a problem. But um, I think I think uh, it just was a question of doing enough training and enough different circumstances where she got a big reward for finding mm -hmm. them. And I'd set up situations as close to reality as possible where I knew where the bed bugs were. And that also is a problem because if I knew where the bed bugs were, she could read my body language quite well. Yes. <laughs> They're so smart. They're pesky <laughs> that way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And even though she was a beagle and lived in the nose, the world of her nose, and probably could have been blindfolded and been a perfectly happy dog, uh, she still did notice my behavior very keenly. So you just said something that opened the Pandora's box again for me. Stop it, Martha. Um, <laughs> you are genius about reading dog body language. And that's and then you talked about Bali and and what you're doing now. And I I feel like I want to talk to you for days and days about what you've learned about reading dog body language because you are so gifted in that. Um, and you have the I, I don't remember the number. What's the number of our eyes or something? The Thousand group that you eyes. Oh, oh no. George George Schaller, the by the ethologist, said that to understand the communication signals of any animal species, you have to have five thousand hour eyeballs. Wow, that's a long. And so, time. how many hours do you think you have? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I have noticed. I have noticed that. The lowly, humble daycare, doggy daycare worker and the shelter worker who is not being touted as any kind of behaviorist or trainer are way better at reading dogs than most trainers. They see behavior eight hours a day. And no matter how clueless or untalented you are with dogs, it will sink in. Mm -hmm. And um, and if you're watching carefully and you're interested, it'll sink in a lot faster. But it's exactly the way children learn to read other people. So um, so it's sort of a matter of uh, a matter of just absorbing, because Schaller said to begin to understand the communication signals, not to understand them. To begin. And I'm working on I'm working on a series of videos, which are a slideshow, where, for instance, I have 40 photos of different dogs' heads doing whale eye. There's no there's no commentary. There's you simply watch an endless series of different looking dogs all doing the exact same behavior. 
my goal is that your brain will screen out all the irrelevant fur, body size, ears, position, and your brain will start to recognize that flash of white from a distance before you get bit. Hmm. So Martha, um, you shared that with us in our little chat and I've watched um, uh, probably five times. I've watched the 30 second video that you made and it's been so helpful already. Uh, do you know where you're wanting to release this or how? Uh, I'm working on a proposal to to the publisher. I hope that they would take it because it's not like anything anyone's I've ever seen before. Um, it's simply an endless repetition of different dogs doing the exact same behavior, like the exact same paw lift, hmm. the exact same tail position, the exact same uh, defensive or or forward um, agonistic pucker showing their teeth. Um, so I think I have material. I've gotten about, I've gotten at least 10,000 behavior photos in my database that I've taken since I came to Bali. So like I've got 300 photos of Waylock, uh, for instance, breeding, fighting, everything. So my idea is you just take one tiny snippet of behavior and people do say you need to see a behavior in the context, but this is, that's not my goal goal is that you learn to recognize a playful wide eye. You learn to recognize a paw that's raised because it's feeling appeasing or nervous, not because it's taking a step. Hmm. Well, and then you have more material to put into your actual observation of real life dogs, because I'm not trying to say that this substitutes for any real life observation. This is just training our brains to recognize those things that happen in a quarter of a second and that you might only see once a day in a whole doggy daycare set situation. So how are you going to see these things enough to recognize them? I want to flood the brain so it sees the individual words. And then when you look at the real dogs interacting, you will see the sentences. And that's where I think it's brilliant because so many people want to jump to the next step. They want to just be able to be great at reading something and be able to just go there. And I think that the observation piece is what really separates all of our trainers. And we talked about that actually in our last episode. And that was one, they're the two parts that I want to add to criteria, rate of reinforcement and timing is your understanding and your observation. Because I think those two things, you have to understand what you're wanting to create. You also have to be educated. So all that plays into the understanding, but that observation piece, I want so many more resources for that. And I feel like you can really fill that hole for so many people because they they don't even know what to look for. So if you don't know what to look for, that understanding part, you know, that that's the piece we need. I I can't wait for this to just get out there and and it's so needed. So I'm very excited that you're doing this. And the understanding that you were talking about that it just starts at 5,000 hours, I think about how many handlers and even trainers struggle with recognizing in-odor behavior out of their dogs. And it takes them a long time to recognize patterns. And after 
instructing for a really long time, I can finally recognize common patterns that dogs do, but that's, it still changes by dog. And then it is also really hard to articulate sometimes to the handler on the feedback I'm giving you is based on this twitch that I saw from the dog. And so I, I think the the observation piece, because people often don't want to go to trainings and audit so they can just watch dogs um, because they feel like they have to be doing the thing with their dog to learn anything. And that's so not true. Well, yes, I, I found that uh, going to protection clubs and watching the training, you know, some people would be like, oh, my God, my turn isn't for two hours. And I would be like, oh, my God, I just saw three different dogs act fearful and get told their dog was not going to join the club because it was not happy. You know, I just saw three dogs looking great from the first minute and grabbing the rag, you know, and so all of these dogs at the club had different um, different behaviors. And luckily, luckily for me, it's kind of a, it used to be a much of a man's world, but usually in the club, there was always at least one woman that I could go to and say, what did that mean guy say? What did this mean? We're trying to cap the drive. What, what? It was all <laughs> new jargon. And luckily these women would say, oh, Martha, it, it means this and this and this and this and this and this, and this you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> but the observation of dogs doing various prey behaviors, uh, defensive behaviors, chase behaviors, avoidance behaviors, escape behaviors, and straight out fear for the ones that were not suitable uh, was just invaluable. And we're going to stop it there. Join us for the next set of discussions that we have with Martha on our next episode, Crystal and I spend some significant time talking to her about why she was breeding Frenchies and who she looks up to for training. So join us next time on the Canine Detection Collaborative and go train. Canine Detection Collaborative. We appreciate the time you spend with us. If you liked this episode, not only should you follow us so you don't miss the next one, but please also rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. For info on collaborating with us, go to K9DetectionCollaborative.com. That's K9DetectionCollaborative.com, where you can find our socials and pick up our latest monthly freebie. Join us again to talk training in the next episode.